Here we go. Let me pray uh, before we go any further. Father, we thank you. Thank you for all that we've already uh, sung and declared as truth this afternoon. Thank you that we're here. Thank you that despite so many different things pulling at our time and our attention this afternoon, we've decided to come here. And Father, we pray that, that as we hear from your word, that, um, that you would bless us with not just hearing more truth, but by changing us. Father, we believe that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so we pray that it would bring about a change in each of us this afternoon that would have us leaving here with a greater understanding of who you are and a greater love for what you have done. Jesus, we thank you for all that you have shown yourself to be in your life, your death, your resurrection, and your ascension. Help us to see the beauty in the gospel this afternoon, we pray. It's in your name that we ask. Amen. If any of you have ever been to Paris, probably on your to-do list was a visit to the Louvre. If you haven't been to Paris or if you've never heard of the Louvre, the Louvre is a great uh, museum or art gallery which houses some of the most famous, expensive pieces of artwork in the world. And if you've been to the Louvre, no doubt on your to-do list as you're going around the Louvre would be to go and visit one particular painting. Probably the most, no, not probably, definitely the most famous painting in all the world. Leonardo da Vinci's most famous piece of work, the Mona Lisa. Good stuff. And if you've ever been to see the Mona Lisa, you might be a bit surprised. Because the way that people talk about the Mona Lisa is it's this grand painting, you're going to be overwhelmed, it's this this thing of just amazing beauty, and you walk into the hall, and some of you seeing it know exactly what I'm talking about, it's tiny. It's smaller than an A3 piece of paper, it looks fairly insignificant. I mean, the lady in the portrait, I'm guessing her name's... Lisa, or Mona Lisa, I don't know, but she doesn't look that interested in being there. She's wearing normal-looking clothes for the 1500s. She's got no uh, special makeup or jewellery on. The landscape behind her is pretty bleak. It's, it's actually quite a dull-looking painting. And yet, thousands and millions of people would say it is the most beautiful piece of artwork that they've ever seen. It is, hands down, the most famous piece of artwork, the most viewed piece of artwork, the most sung about, talked about, written about piece of artwork that has ever graced our planet. And there is something about it and something that uh, Da Vinci was able to do. And we could kind of go into the details of the different kind of artistic um, uh, tools that he used. There is something about it that captivates us. It has people sitting in front of it, speechless. Sitting there, sometimes probably people for hours, captivated by a beauty that maybe they can't explain. As we come to the passage that we're going to look at this afternoon, folks, and we hear about Jesus, let's ask ourselves the same question. And we consider Jesus and consider the thousands, millions, and billions of people who are captivated by it. Why is that? 
What is it that is so captivating about Jesus? What is it that we find so compelling about him? What is it that draws not only many of us in this room, but billions of other people around this planet today? Draws us to follow him, to love him, to give our lives to him. Well, let's read and find out. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 11. Let me just warn you, two warnings. This is a long reading, and also it's extra spicy this afternoon. There are a few things in, in the scripture passage this afternoon, which might just kind of, I don't know, they'll raise your attention. And can I just ask you, just hold on to those things. If you feel tension as we read, if you feel, oh, this just doesn't feel right, hold on to it. We're going to get there. So let's go. Keep with me. We're starting in verse 11 of chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles, that's those who aren't Jews, honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep or have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewellery or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honour to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, we've seen so far in this letter from Peter, him remind God's people, the church, Christians, those who were born again, that we are exiles. 
We are people who've been chosen by God, changed by God, we're being cleansed by God, and we've been called by God into what he's described so far as a living hope. We sung it already this afternoon. This isn't it. Like, we are heading somewhere. There is an eternity ahead of us. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a living hope now because of what is to come. Because of Jesus' resurrection, you will rise again and we will live with God for all eternity. But there is much for us to do now. We're called to be holy now. And last week we reminded ourselves that we can live holy lives now by listening to who God says that we are. By loving those around us like God loves us and by living holy lives. And this uh, passage that we start on this afternoon is a bit of a hinge point in the letter. Peter's going to get really practical. He's going to show us, okay, what does it look like for us to live holy lives? What does it look like for us to live as exiles, sojourners, people who feel like maybe we don't belong here? What does it look like to live holy lives in a world that often feels hostile towards us? And the passage that we just read, I appreciate it was long, but maybe we could sum it up like this. God has called on us through his word to live with a countercultural honour that is captivated by the beauty of Christ. We're to live with a countercultural honour that is captivated by the beauty of Christ. Now, if you've got your Bible, just look down at me to verse 11 to 17. You know, back at school, when you, when you write an essays in English and you were taught to, to kind of start with a bit of a summary right at the top of your essay, just a few lines that summarize what's going to come. That's what Peter's doing here. So in verses 11 to 17, he's given us a bit of a summary paragraph of everything that he's then going to go on to say in the rest of the passage that we talked about. So in verse 11, he he reminds us again, this is the third time he's reminded the church. We are exiles. We are sojourners. We don't really use those words so much now. But again, he's reminded us that we are a people who will live differently. We stand out. And even so, that is the case. He knows that we will be tempted, as we saw last week, to pull back, to retreat, because it's hard to live as exiles. It's hard to live as those who are just passing through this life. It's hard to live the Christian life because often it does look so different. And so he says in verse 11, abstain, keep away from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Now, quite often when we see passions of the flesh uh, in the New Testament, we automatically think of, of sexual licentiousness, uh, things like that, or, or, or being drunk or idolatry, those sorts of things. But that isn't what he's talking about here. The passions of the flesh here, I think he's talking about that temptation to pull back. The passion of the flesh, that kind of temptation to retreat or to go to comfort rather than stepping into the holy life that he has called us to. That can be a fleshly desire to want to reject the holy life that we have been called into and to just blend into the background. But he says, flee from those things. They are going to wage war against you. Flee from those kind of passions. And instead, he says, live honorably. Verse 12, live honorably. Live honorably. And, and he says kind of just three things, even in just these couple of verses that, that will happen when we live honorably. The first thing is when we live honorably in this world, as those who've been born again, it will be a surprise. In verse 12, you see just this idea that, that um, this kind of living that they're going to they're gonna engage in will be against those who will speak against them or in the presence of those who will speak against them. People are around them calling them evildoers. See, when Peter writes this letter back in the first century, there was a preconception of Christians. People thought they were weird. People thought they were foolish. People thought they were odd. 
Anyone relate to that? Like, I feel like that sometimes. Like, when people kind of talk to me about my faith, we feel the same things. People have preconceptions about Christians today. A lot of people think that we're no fun at all. And quite oftentimes, we prove them right. <laughs> people think that, that we hate things like sex. We hate women. They have preconceptions of who we are. And I think Peter's calling us to live in such a way, to live with such an honour, that the people who think we are these certain things are surprised. Oh, I didn't. I didn't think the Christians, they laugh and they, and, they, and they enjoy each other's company and they party and they dance and they, they have a beer every now and again. Like, like we can live in a way that is actually a surprise to those around us. Firstly, our, our honourable living is a surprise. Secondly, it is a witness. See that Peter says that when they look, they will see their good deeds. It's not just that we kind of live in a certain way that looks differently. He says we live in good ways. We live in good ways in the world around us. And the third thing that happens as we live honorably is that God is glorified. You see that at the end of verse 12? God will be glorified. Whether we bow the knee to Jesus now or not, one day we will give him glory. When we live honorably, it will catch people by surprise. It will be a witness to them and God will be glorified. When we talk about God being glorified, maybe we could say this. The beauty of Christ is illuminated. When God is glorified, the beauty of Christ is illuminated. And that, folks, there were some interesting things in that passage, weren't there? But really, the beauty of Christ being illuminated is what is at the heart of this passage. And actually, it's at at the heart of the Christian life. As we live and as we desire to live as people who who live with a countercultural honour, we don't do that to put ourselves on a pedestal. We do it so that Christ would be adored. That's the purpose of the Christian life, folks. It's to illuminate the beauty of Christ. And Peter goes on and he gives us three arenas or three examples of where we can live this kind of countercultural honour, where we can live in a way that's surprising, that is a witness, and in a way that God is glorified or Christ, the beauty of Christ is illuminated. He gives us the example of, of the political arena and then the workplace arena and then the relational arena. And we're going to get to those things in a minute, but actually I don't want to spend much time on those at all. Because the real meat in this passage, the real thing that Peter wants to draw us towards is the beautiful example of Christ. Again, if you look at your passage, verse 21 to 25, this is right at the heart of what Peter is calling us to be as a people of countercultural honour. He wants us to first see the beautiful example of Christ. So in verse 21, like uh, Peter knows, and we're going to come back to the bits before, but this is so important that we go here first. Peter knows in verse 21 that living in these ways, living in in a way that is an an, an honorable way in the world that we live in is going to be hard. And so he says in verse 21, okay, here's an example. Let me show you Christ. Let me lead you towards seeing Jesus Christ. Here is an example so that you can follow in his steps. And again, just like we saw that that the life that we're called into, this honourable life that we're called into is a surprise, is a witness and glorifies God, we see the same with Jesus in these passages. So here's the surprise. He's talking about Jesus being led towards his death at the cross. And if it was you or I, we'd be kicking and screaming. Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. He is the holy, perfect one. But how does Peter describe him? He did not retaliate. did not threaten now that is a surprise to those around him right 
And then we see his witness. Jesus is led towards a, a, a trial for, for what he has done wrong. And yet, Peter says, in him there was no sin. In him there was no deceit. When we're talking about the good life, Jesus embodies the good life perfectly. He is the perfect witness of what it is to live well, to live a good life. The surprise is his witness. And then, of course, we see God's glory at the cross. At the cross, we see the beauty of Christ illuminated like nowhere else. And folks, before we move on to look at these three examples, I want us just to sit in the beautiful example that Jesus has given us. Just remind ourselves of what he has done. Verse 24. Peter says that at the cross, Jesus bore our sins in his body. Let's just slow down for a few minutes, folks, and just allow these truths to warm our hearts and to draw our focus towards Jesus and to see his life, his death, and all that he has done for us. He bore our sins in his body. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, took our sins and his body was broken open. He was flogged. He was spat upon. He was treated as a sinner. His body was treated as ours should be treated. He bore our sins in his body. Verse 24 again. He did that so that we might die to sin. At the cross, Jesus defeated our sin. Now, if you're a Christian, you will struggle with sin this week. No doubt you probably struggle with sin Today, you've probably struggled with sin as you walked here or drove here this afternoon. You probably have. If you're a Christian at the cross, Jesus has defeated it. We will still struggle with sin, but the penalty of sin, which is death and judgment from God, is gone. There's none left. Jesus defeated it for us at the cross. And again, in verse 24, he made us righteous. Through his death, he has made a way for us to live rightly in the presence of God right now because Jesus is in the presence of God and we are found in Jesus. We are found righteous in the presence of God. That means we can be in the presence of God. As we're called to be holy, we have no hope on our own of being holy people unless we are found in Christ. And Peter reminds us that he has died for our sin and he has died to make us righteous. See, Christians can have fun. Listen to them, guys. Verse 24 again. By his wounds, you have been healed. The body of Christ broken open. That word wound, it can be translated welt. You know, when someone um, takes a belt or something hard and, and, and cracks it over someone and there's a, a, a red-looking, vicious-looking bruise. That's what Peter's talking about. Because of the lashes that Jesus took. Because of the punches that Jesus took. Because of the hair that was ripped from his beard. 
because of the wounds that were made in his head as a crown of thorns was pushed into his brow. You received spiritual healing. And one day, every single one of us, if we are found in Christ, will we'll enjoy the physical healing of being in the presence of God. By his wounds, you've been healed. And then in verse 25, we are those who've been redeemed. We were once straying like sheep. Now we have a great shepherd, the good shepherd, the overseer of our souls. That word overseer there is bishop. Jesus is our bishop. Jesus is our pastor. Jesus is our elder. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the one who cares for our souls and he will not let us wander away never to come back. He has redeemed us. The blood of Christ is a seal over all of those who have been born again that cannot be removed. We are his now and we will be his into all of eternity. This is the beautiful example of Christ, folks. And is there anything more beautiful in the world? Is there anything more honourable in the world than what we see in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? See, it's interesting. Matty read to us before about from Isaiah 53. As those around looked on Jesus, they saw no beauty in him, but we who know him see him and his life and all that he's done as the most beautiful thing that we could ever see. And now in response, the way that we live, our honourable lives that we are called to live, flow from the example that Christ has given us. So if you wind back up to verse 17, we're going to go through these three examples really quickly. In verse 17, you just have this call from from Peter, love everyone, honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the emperor. So so if there are those who are kind of falling between the gaps of these three examples that we're going to look at, Peter says, no, 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 honour everyone. Like honour these three certain type of people that we're going to see, but really you are called as God's people to to honour everyone. Here's the first example in verses 13 to 17. Uh, we're called to honour those who are in political authority over us. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, verse 13, or to governors. And then again in verse 17, honour the emperor. You have to live honourable lives in a, in a way that honours those who are in political authority over us. And so here's how it looks for us today. Joanne Anderson, who's our mayor. Kim Johnson, who's our MP. Boris Johnson, who's our prime minister. If we are born again, we are called to honour them. Now, I can honour Joanne Anderson and Kim Johnson, but if I'm being honest, I find it difficult to honour Boris Johnson. Because I look at his life and I look at what he does and I know many of us agree in the same ways. Maybe you struggle even to honour some of the other ladies that I've mentioned there. But here's the helpful thing. Peter is writing to a people whose leaders put our leaders in another league altogether. Like their leaders were Nero, um, the governor Felix, and Pontius Pilate, who sentenced Peter's Lord to death. And Peter says, honour them. And actually in verse 14, it is God's will that you honour them. God has placed them in these positions and placed them there so that they would receive your honour. And in verse 15, when you do honour them, you will stand out. Honour them. 
You are called into freedom, he says, freedom from sin, but freedom into a better way of living, a way that honors other people, a way that sees everyone around us as, as people who are created in the image of God with worth, dignity, and value. And that might be hard when we look at the people around us who are leading, but can I call us back to the beautiful example of Christ? That is our fuel for honor. So let me ask this question. What would it look like for us to live honorably as citizens who have been captured by the beauty of Christ? Who see the things that people in authority are doing, the bad things and the things that we struggle with, but we still honor them as those who have been captured by the beauty of Christ. So can I encourage you? Email Kim Johnson. When you see her do something good, email her and honor her. Well, can I even extend maybe... Maybe we, we even start talking well of the people who are in authority over us. I know that's hard for us in this city. It is hard. Practically, the example that Christ has before us is that these are people who are made in his image. And Christ was willing to suffer, willing to, to, to come down here and, and take the form of a servant. I know this is hard for us, folks, but it is a way that we show ourselves to belong to Christ. And we are captivated by his example. And we live honorably as citizens in the places that we live. Here's the second example in verses 18 to 20. Being honorable in our workplaces. So he calls in verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Let me just give a disclaimer. He is not condoning slavery here. The type of servant-master relationship he's talking about here isn't automatically what we think about. So in, in the, the Roman Empire, there were three types of people. You had a Roman citizen who had the full right to the empire. They had all the privileges that um, uh, you could imagine. The second type of person was what they called a freedman. So this was someone who um, had privileges, but some of them were restricted. And then the third type of person, which was most people, was the servant class. So these were people who were managers or helpers in homes. And the modern day equivalent would be anyone who works for someone else. Now, is that anyone? Does anyone else work for some? Like, we, we pretty much all do. Like, most of us who work, work for someone else. And so this is applicable for us. And Peter says, we respect our bosses. We honor our bosses, even if we have bad ones. And actually, it's surprising when we honor them. He says in verse 19 and 20, that when we honor them, even when they're bad, that is a gracious thing. The word grace is, is an undeserved gift. It's something that they don't deserve. So actually, when we've got bad bosses and we live in an honorable way, a respectful way towards them, that surprises them. And it's a good witness as well. He wants us to do good. He wants us to be seen to be do good. So can I just kind of put some flesh on the bones for us, folks? If you feel like you're underpaid, if you feel like you should have more privileges in work, if you feel like you should be working less hours or maybe more hours, if you feel like you're someone who never gets any, gra any gratitude for the good things that you do, you're in good company. Peter says, show honor. Show honor. It's a gracious thing to do that. And you don't do that as just kind of someone who's roaming around, just trying to show honor wherever you can. In verse 19, he says, be mindful of God when you do it. Remember the example of Christ when you do it. Because you won't want to do it. No one wants to be good to a bad boss. And so we call our mind back to the beautiful example of Christ. 
And so here's another question. What would it look like for us to live honorably as employees who are captured by the beauty of Christ? How would that change how we talk about our bosses? How we encourage our bosses? Could we even pray for them? Here's the third example. The third arena that we get is relational honour. In chapter um, three over the page, we see uh, this call to live in certain ways in, in marital relationships. So all social relationships are transformed when we see the beauty of Christ. Paul wants, uh, Peter wants to draw us specifically to the relationship between a husband and a wife here. And he says in uh, chapter three, verse one, wise be subject to your own husbands. The word there is submit, which makes some of us feel uneasy. Wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And I just want to kind of just help us here. Peter is not dealing with specific issues here. Remember, Peter's writing to lots of churches, dozens of churches, probably with thousands of marriages in those churches. What he's trying to establish here is a principle of honour. He's not talking about specific marital relationships that he's, he's trying to address here. So let me just caveat what he's saying with this. He's not saying that we submit to our husbands if you're a wife, if your husband is asking you to sin. He's not saying that you submit to your husband if, if he's been unfaithful to you and you, you think you've got no way out. He's not saying that. He's not saying that if you're married to an abuser, you stay silent. He's not saying even if you're a wife here this afternoon, you always agree with your husband. He's not saying that. He's not saying that you don't ever give a different view to your husband. In fact, in verse five and verse six, he gives the example of Sarah of being someone who submits well to her husband. And Sarah, if you know Sarah from the Old Testament, what you read there is a woman who is not weak. She's not timid. She's not someone who's oppressed. In fact, what you see with Sarah is she's someone who gets right up into Abraham's face. Like she tells Abraham when he's wrong. And Peter says she's a good example. Peter is calling wives here into, into a way of living that looks honourable. He's calling us into a way of living that maybe looks surprising to those around us. It's a witness and God is glorified just like we've seen with the other examples. But the first surprise we see in verse 3 is that he encourages wives to cultivate an internal beauty. See, in the first century, as Peter is writing, there was so much pressure on women to, to look a certain way. Beauty was something which was external. People looked at what you wore, the type of clothes that you wore, the jewellery that you wore, how you had your hair. And Peter's saying, don't put all your effort there. Don't put your effort on beauty that is exterior. That's interesting. When people read this passage, people often think that Peter is, is being oppressive against women. And actually, it's quite the opposite. He thinks more highly of women than probably most people in our culture does. Because he's saying in one sense, it doesn't really matter what's on the outside. What matters is what's going on inside. And he encourages Christian wives to take time to dress their hearts with Christ. And he's not saying... Don't ever spend money on good clothes or don't ever braid your hair. No one's got braided hair this afternoon. Interesting. Um, he's not saying that at all. He's not saying don't spend money on jewellery. He's talking about where the emphasis is. 
Just as you might take time, ladies, wives, to dress yourselves well in the morning, take time to dress your hearts with Christ in the morning. And the example that we are given of Christ is that he is gentle and meek. He is respectful. He is someone who has pure conduct like Peter is calling wives to live here. And that kind of witness, folks, is compelling. It is a compelling witness when you ladies live in those ways. When you live with respect and purity towards your husband. It is so compelling that Peter says even some of your husbands who might not be Christians will be won over by it. That's how powerful your witness is. Hear that, ladies. That is empowering. That is elevating you. Paul, uh, Peter doesn't let the men get off with this at all, does he? In verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, he calls ladies, he calls women there weaker vessels. What he's not doing here is oppressing ladies, He's not bringing you down on the ladder at all. This word, word weak is actually uh, to be translated in a way when we think of, of maybe like a, a china bowl or a porcelain bowl. And what he's doing simply is just drawing out the differences between men and women. We might say it like this. Wives, love your, love your husbands, love your wives because they don't have the advantages that you do. In the world that we live in, they don't have the same advantages as you do, whether that's physically or just with the opportunities in the world, they don't have the same advantages that you do. And that's true. I don't think I'm saying anything controversial there. And so the right thing for a husband, the loving thing for a husband to do is to recognize that and show honor to them. Husbands, can I just say this? You know what you don't do with a china bowl? You don't kind of shove it in the cupboard and, and, or even put it in the dishwasher. Like if, if you've taken mum's china bowls and tried to do it before, you know that is a no-no. Like they grab her off you straight away and they say, no, we, we treat them gently. We wash them carefully. We treasure them. We put them on the mantelpiece and bring them out once every 10 years. <laughs> like we love them in that way. I think that's what Peter's trying to call husbands towards. Honor your wives. Man, that means you don't call your wives stupid. That means you don't dishonor them. That means you elevate them when you're talking about them around other people. I don't talk about the Ikea ball much, but I probably would talk about the China ball much. And I'd say good things about it. And so husbands, do that. Talk well of your wives. Don't put them down. Honor them in ways that actually, these are ways that stand out in the culture that we live in. Do you know what? It's interesting. At the end of verse 6, Peter says that as you live in these ways, he's talking about wives, but this is true for the whole uh, spectrum of all that he's been talking about already. As we live as people who honour those who are in authority, as we live as those who honour our, our bosses, those who employ us, as we live as those who honour our wives and honour our husbands, he says that can be a frightening thing because it feels like we're working against the grain in the culture that we live in. He says, don't be fearful. We can look back to the beautiful example of Christ. The way of life that we are called to is a life that will stand out. It's a way of life that we live, not so that we would be made much of. It's a way of life that we live so that we would draw attention to all that Christ has done. Folks, we do good because he has done good to us. 
He is the fuel for our honourable living. And when we're struggling, go back to the cross. Go back to the beautiful example that Christ has already given us. We're going to take this meal now, folks. And this is a wonderful opportunity to fuel our faith. To be captivated again by the beauty of Christ. If you're struggling with just this idea of living honourable lives, then you need to be captivated again by Christ. I'm going to read a few verses from Isaiah chapter 53. If you know this passage already, you'll notice that what Peter has written in the portion that you just read sounds very familiar. He's definitely got Isaiah in his mind as he's writing this letter to the churches that he writes to. And he wants them to be captivated by the beauty of Christ. Maybe if you've got a Bible, you could turn there. I'm going to read verses 4 to 6 for us. This is just another reminder of all that Jesus Christ has done for us in the cross. The great example that he has left for us. A way of suffering that leads to glory. A way of submission that has led to us being brought into the family of God. So I'm going to read these few verses. When I'm done, I'm going to pray. Give thanks for the bread and the wine. If you're a Christian, then this is an open meal for you. The table is open. Jesus is the host and he invites you to come and eat. And as you eat, maybe just before you get up, just take some time. Just to confess of your sin, to repent. And then come and take this meal as a celebration. He has borne your sins in his body on the tree. The penalty is gone. The price has been paid. You have been redeemed. He is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And no matter what you've done this week, he will not let you go. And so we take this meal with a, a heart of celebration. Because Jesus has risen from the grave and he has ascended at the right hand of the Father. And we take this meal as a time to care for each other. So if you want prayer this afternoon, either just pop your hand up or get alongside someone else. And I'm sure they'd love to pray for you. Um, But when you're ready, once I pray, just come up and take of the meal. And enjoy this as a great reminder of the beauty that we see in the finished work of the cross. Let me read these verses for us and then I'll pray. Talking of Jesus, Isaiah says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all.